Hello and welcome to PwC IFRS Talks, your source for all things IFRS. Technical accounting matters, business issues, current standard setting and regulatory updates. I'm your host, Ruth Preedy. In today's episode, we're looking at July IFRS news and we're going to cover two topics. I'm first joined by Sandra Thompson, who's going to talk to us about some of the implications of IFRS 9. We're going to recap on debt modifications and also talk about factoring for corporates. Then I'm joined by Tony DeBell, and he's going to tell us about a new IFRIC, IFRIC 23, which is on uncertain tax treatments. First up in the podcast studio, I'm joined by Sandra Thompson, and we're going to talk about some of the things in IFRS 9. First up, in our last June IFRS News podcast, we talked about a recent tentative IFRIC decision on debt modification. That tentative decision told us that if there was a debt modification, any remeasurement would actually go through the P&L. And when we last met Sandra, we thought, oh, well, they'll re-debate that and we'll maybe see that coming back in the autumn. They surprised us. It came back in June already. So can you give us an update on what they said? Yeah, sure. Um, I think as we said last time, the first thing to notice, this could be a big and quite unexpected change for many companies. Today, when companies change their liabilities, they renegotiate their liabilities, they typically spread the effect forward. But if Rick had tentatively concluded that under IFRS 9, you don't do that, you take the effect immediately. Um, they had 14 comment letters in response to their tentative decision, and they all expressed concerns. And I think the most common concern was whether an IFRIC agenda decision is the right mechanism to do this. As I've already said, it's a big and surprising change for many companies. It can have a material effect. IFRIC gender decisions don't come with transitional provisions. And there's also some concern about whether IFRIC gender decisions get enough visibility, so whether this will actually be noticed and acted on by enough companies. So for all those reasons, IFRIC narrowly voted that this should not be an IFRIC gender decision. Having said that, most of the IFRIC actually still thought it was the right answer. That's the right reading of the words under IFRS 9. So the obvious question is, well, what happens next? If it's not an agenda decision, what is it? And at this stage, we don't know. So we expect the staff will have a bit more of a think about, do they need another mechanism to get this out? They leave it for the post-implementation review. So we actually don't know quite what's going to happen next. So it is very much a watch this space. As we said last time, if you've done these debt renegotiations in the past you could still be impacted. So know what you've got would be my tip for now. Yeah, okay, perfect. So we'll definitely, as soon as we know something more, we can update listeners on that one. The other thing we thought we'd cover is we've had lots of material coming out recently about how IFRS 9 is going to impact corporates. I think we all understand that IFRS 9 is going to impact banks, but actually it's going to have more far-reaching implications that we need to start thinking about. I think the big thing that corporates have got is obviously trade receivables, and they can also have factoring arrangements. So what we thought we'd touch on today, we can't cover everything, so we thought we would cover just what is the impact of having a factor arrangement on trade receivables. So before we get started, IFRS 9 talks about classification and measurement of financial assets, and it gives us two criteria. Could you tell us what those are? Yeah, sure. The first criteria is sometimes called the contractual characteristics test. That sounds a bit of a mouthful. It does. <laughs> it, it, that's really a long-hand way of saying, is this a basic, plain, vanilla debt type instrument? And trade receivables typically are. You have a contractual right to get a known amount of cash on a specified date. That would be some kind of plain, vanilla debt type instrument. And those, subject to the second test, those can be measured at amortised cost. The second test is a business model test. And IFRS 9 has three different business models. 
So you know what I'm going to ask, Sandra? What are those three models? Yeah, you're spot on. <laughs> so the first one is what's called a held-to-collect business model. This is a case where you're holding the asset to collect the contractual cash flows as they fall due. So if you have a corporate that just holds its trade receivables, wait for them to pay off and collect some cash, that would be a held-to-collect business model. And those trade receivables would be at amortised cost. The second business model is called how to collect and sell. And that's the case where a company collects some of the assets but sells some of the assets. And that's where factoring comes in that we'll come back to in a minute. So if you're in that category, you sell some of your trade receivables, you collect others, then the consequence is that those trade receivables are at fair value in the balance sheet. You have to fair value them. The income statement's still done on an amortised cost basis, just like the first category. However, the differences between those two go to OCI. And then the third business model, the last one, is sometimes called other because it's what's left, but more commonly we call it a held to sell business model. So this will be the case where the company is selling all its trade receivables. And in that case, it will be in that third business model and it would have to fair value the trade receivables and take all the gains and losses through the income statement. Now, obviously, for trade receivables, fair value hmm. them might not be easy, yeah. particularly if they're, they're long term. Yeah. So that's something to be aware of. So you mentioned it there a little bit. Can you tell us, so if you have factoring, you might be in that held to sell model? Yeah, um, I think if you're doing factoring, the first question to ask is, well, does my factoring result in an accounting sale? So some factorings do, particularly when the bad debt risk is transferred to the factor and the slow payment risk is also transferred to the factor. Those typically result in the company de-recognising trade receivables, taking off its balance sheet and for accounting purposes, treating them as sold. If you're in that category, that's a sale for your business model test too. So therefore, you're likely not to be in the how to collect amortised costs business model. You'll be in one of the other two. And which you're in will depend on how many trade receivables you sell and get accounting sales for. So if you sell them all, you'll probably be in that last business model, fair value here now. If you sell only some of them and you collect others, you'll be in the, the middle business model where you've got fair value on balance sheet, income statement is still amortised cost. And if you are in that middle model, have you got any practical tips people could do? Yeah, very much so. So what I'd say to companies is look at whether you can segregate your trade receivables into the two different buckets, if you like. So have you got a separate group of trade receivables that you factor? Maybe it's the larger customers, maybe it's the more credit worthy, maybe it's certain countries. And can you put those in a separate little business model all of their own? Those would be held for sale. If you factor them quite quickly after you get them, say a matter of days, you're going to have little on your balance sheet. Fair value is probably going to be very close to what you need sold for, so that, that's probably not going to be an issue. And then if you've got a separate group of the others which you are collecting the cash flows, you're holding them right through to their maturity, those might be the smaller debtors, and might be certain countries, the less credit worthy. Can they be a separate held-to-collect business model and therefore amortise cost? Two things to note is to get there, you do need two separate groups. You can't just have them all commingled, so you've got some way to rationally split them and show you're managing them separately. And the other thing is you need to do it before you adopt the standard because you do your business models when you first adopt IFRS 9. For most companies, that's the 1st of January 2018, not the end of 2018, <laughs> no, the 1st of January 2018. So think about it now, yeah. don't wait. So people that have got factoring arrangements now really need to think about can we actually separate into two areas if they want to utilise that. Yeah. Okay, perfect. And is there anything out there that people can use if they're struggling and thinking how IFRS 9 is going to impact them? This is a wonderful opportunity to put my videos. So we have a series of 10-minute videos on IFRS 9 for corporates. The issue we just talked about is one of them, but we yeah. go through the new impairment model. We go through some other things on classification and measurement, some of the hedge accounting tips. 
So please do free to watch those. They're on YouTube. Brilliant. They're also on pwc.com IFRS. Um, my children think it's great they can see me on YouTube these days. <laughs> and they can hear you on the iTunes now as well. They so can so it's exciting. But, and we will obviously do a podcast on how IFRS 9 is going to impact corporates at some point in the future as well. So I'm sure we'll see you back in the podcast studio soon, Sandra. But thank you for joining us today. IFRIC 23 was issued on the 7th of June 2017, which clarifies how the recognition and measurement requirements of IS-12, income taxes, are applied where there is an uncertainty over income tax treatments. We're joined in the podcast studio today by Tony DeBell, who's going to talk us through the basics of IFRIC 23. So let's start at the beginning. What is an uncertain tax treatment? So an uncertain tax treatment is any treatment applied by an entity in the preparation of its tax return or that it intends to apply in the preparation of its tax return where there is uncertainty over whether that treatment will be accepted by the relevant tax authority. So an example might be deciding to claim a deduction for a particular expense where it's not clear that tax legislation would allow that expense to be deducted. Another example would be deciding whether or not a particular entity is even required to file a tax return in a given jurisdiction, or maybe a decision around whether a particular uh, source of income ought to be included as taxable income on the tax return. So it's really any position that's going to be taken or has been taken by an entity on its tax return where there is uncertainty about whether the tax authority will find that acceptable. Okay, so it's basically the entity is concluding on something, but it's not sure what the tax authority, if they'll agree or not. Okay, so why was the interpretation needed in the first place? Because it fills a gap. IS12 provides guidance on the accounting for current taxes and the accounting for deferred taxes. And it provides some principles around uh, both the recognition and measurement of taxes, but it doesn't address tax uncertainties specifically. And so this interpretation fills a gap and provides a a model that will allow entities to consider and then determine the the accounting for tax uncertainties. So one of the things it does is it confirms uncertain tax positions are in the scope of IS-12. One area I see in practice where we talk about uncertainties a lot is in a business combination. Has it clarified how we would account for it in a BizCon? No. This is something that we did talk about in, in, in the committee and considered whether the interpretation ought to be extended to address the implications of tax uncertainties in a, in a business combination. But the committee decided that was really an issue for IFRS 3. So as you're aware, IFRS 3 says specifically that deferred taxes are accounted for in a business combination in accordance with IS 12, not IFRS 3. But IFRS 3 is silent about current taxes. Uh, and so the committee decided that to address that question will be to interpret IFRS 3. So the position now is that if an entity is applying IAS 12 to defer taxes in a business combination, which it has to, or maybe to current taxes in the business combination, then it would apply this interpretation. But the interpretation does not change the scope of IFRS 3. Okay, that's really helpful. So if we start at the beginning, the first thing the interpretation covers is the unit of account. So if you had a number of uncertain tax treatments, what would you need to do? Okay, so the interpretation covers uh, all aspects of tax uncertainty. So uh, it would address uncertainties around the tax rate, around the tax base, 
around the availability of tax credits, around the availability of tax losses and so forth. So it addresses all aspects of both current and deferred tax implications of tax uncertainties. Uh, and, and as with all pieces of accounting, the first thing is to think about the unit of account. So in what circumstances, one, two, maybe three uncertainties considered together. And so what the interpretation requires is that a group of uncertainties are considered together if that would provide uh, a best, the best indication of the outcome of the resolution of the uncertainty. And so the, thing that, the things that an entity needs to consider is how it prepares and supports the, the, the tax treatment. So when it submits its tax return, does it consider uh, maybe one, two, three uncertainties together or does it look at them separately? And then it also has to consider the approach that it expects the tax authority would take. So would the tax authority look at these items or these uncertainties separately or would it look at them together as a group? Okay, so first step, which we actually need to see in most accounting, you need to work out the unit of account. The next thing the interpretation talks about is this element of detection risk. So can you assume that the tax authority won't investigate something? No, you can't. The interpretation is clear that detection risk is not considered. Uh, entities are required to assume that the tax authority will inspect or will challenge everything it has the right to inspect and that it will have all of the relevant knowledge and information when it does so. So this is consistent with the view that we have always had, that um, detection risk has to be ignored in, in determining the accounting for tax uncertainties. Okay, so you identify unit of account, assume there will be a tax authority investigation. You then get into, at what point do you recognise? So what does it tell us there? IFRA 23 establishes a recognition threshold. So when do you need to do some accounting? The interpretation says if it is probable that the tax authority will accept a particular tax treatment, so on the balance of the tax law and other factors, you conclude that the uh, it is probable that the position will be accepted, then the accounting reflects the position taken or going to be taken on the tax return. If, on the other hand, it is probable that the tax authority will not accept a particular treatment, then the accounting ought to reflect the fact that the tax authority will not accept the treatment, uh, and that could be reflected by the need for an additional tax liability, uh, it could mean that perhaps a tax asset is, is either lower than uh, it would be if the authority accepted it, or maybe there isn't a tax asset at all. Okay, so there's now a probability threshold yes. to decide if we're recognising something or not. Uh -huh. um, and then how do you measure it? So there are two possible ways to um, measure the, the accounting for a, a tax uncertainty. Either the most likely amount, and I think most likely amount would typically be used where the outcome is binary, deductible or not, yep. or where the range of possible outcomes tends to be grouped around a particular outcome. The other method is, is expected value or weighted average of various possible outcomes, and that's likely to be relevant when the potential outcomes are more widely dispersed. I think it's important to remember that this is not a policy choice. So the interpretation is borrowed from IFRS 15 and says that the entity is required to use the approach that provides the best prediction of the outcome. There isn't a free choice and that might be a change from what some people are doing today. Okay, so you can't just pick and choose and you also don't choose one method and go with it forever. Mm -hmm. 
Okay, so the next thing the standard talks about is when you should reassess a judgment or estimate if the facts and circumstances on which those judgments and estimates are based. What does that actually mean? Obviously, management needs at times to reassess the the judgments or the estimates it's made in connection with a tax uncertainty. The interpretation says this is done when there is new information or when there has been a change in facts and circumstances. So examples of changes in circumstances might be coming to an agreement with the tax authority over a particular tax uncertainty. It might be, for example, the statute of limitations on a particular item expiring, so the tax authority is no longer allowed to review it. Another example might be becoming aware that in a similar case, maybe in a different entity, uh, the tax authority has come to a particular conclusion. Something that the interpretation says is that silence from the tax authority, so maybe the tax authority hasn't said it agrees with something, hasn't said it disagrees either, it's just been silent. Uh, The interpretation says that silence in isolation is unlikely to be new information or a change in circumstances. And that again might be a change in, in the way some entities have previously looked at tax uncertainties. Okay, perfect. So obviously one of the key things we care about is when we've got to start thinking about this. So when is it effective and what are the transition rules? So it'll be effective on the 1st of January 2019, so it's about about 18 months away. The transition rules reflect the difficulty of being able to apply judgments in the past without using hindsight. Uh, And so the interpretation says apply 1st of January 2019 don't adjust the comparatives, there will be a catch-up adjustment to the extent that there needs to be an adjustment, and that's made to opening retained earnings 1st of January 2019. The standard can be applied retrospectively in accordance with IAS 8, but only if the adjustments can be made retrospectively without the use of hindsight. So the, the interpretation rather can be adopted early. Yeah. The tricky thing is, if there has been a conclusion with the tax man, you've got to sort of say, well, I didn't know about that in the past, so that doesn't change the adjustment. Okay, perfect. And with any new interpretation or standard, we usually see some additional disclosures. Is there any in EFRIC 23? No, there are no additional disclosure requirements. The interpretation acknowledges that there are frequently judgments required, there are frequently estimates required, and therefore simply reinforces the requirements in IS1 and and draws the attention to those requirements in IS1 to make disclosures in connection with judgments and estimates. Okay, perfect. So no additional disclosure, but don't forget about IS1. You still need to put something in there. Thank you so much for joining us, Tony. Really great 10 minutes on IFRIC 23. And uh, keep an eye out as that comes out on the 1st of January 2019. That brings us to the end of our podcast today on July IFRS News. We're going to keep an eye out for what's going on with debt modification in IFRS 9. You need to think about which business model you're going to be in if you've got factoring arrangements. And also, we've got a new IFRIC 23, which comes out on the 1st of Jan 2019, and that's for uncertain tax treatments. For more information on any of those topics, please visit pwc.com forward slash IFRS. I've been your host, Ruth Preedy. Happy accounting. The preceding programme was brought to you by PricewaterhouseCoopers LLP. This content is for general information purposes and is not a substitute for consultation with professional advisors.